worship, not a passive receiving of something as entertainment is, but worship is an active effort to do something, to acknowledge the greatness of someone or something that is greater than we are. Every human being worships something because we're not God. It's just a part of who we are. Something is greater than we are, and so we bow down to it. We pay homage to it. We worship it or him. And so the angel appears here in Luke's account again, having already appeared to Mary nine months before. The angel appears here again, and by his announcement, by his actions even, he declares, you must worship only God, because only God is worthy. Just as Isaiah had seen in his vision, his great vision of of heaven, just as Isaiah had seen there, our journey into true worship begins only when we see both God's glory and His grace. God alone is glorious. God alone is glorious. These verses here in this passage, this account, kids, as you're drawing a picture of it, these verses are all about glory. You heard it several times. The glory of God shone around the angels in the field. The angels sang glory to God in the highest. The shepherds returned glorifying God and praising His name. These verses are all about glory. And we all know what glory is, don't we? It's, it's, it's instinctual to us as human beings. We know what glory is. We hear whispers of it daily. We catch glimpses of it now and then in our experience in life. Just normal life, going about the things that we typically do, we catch glimpses of glory. And we recognize it when we see it, don't we? You know what I'm talking about. These hints of glory will flash into our lives, and they're often subjective. You know, what I see and recognize as glory, you may not. And what you see and recognize as glory, I may not. And yet, it's glory. So a couple of years ago, I was at the Rangers ballpark with my kids sitting on the front row in left center field when Craig Gentry stepped to the plate. Gentry is the formerly the Rangers speed burner on the bases, and he hit a hard line drive straight out to us, straight out to left center field. And the left fielder and the center fielder both dashed to the middle and dove and overplayed the ball, and it came bounding between them straight out to the wall right beneath our feet. And as they were clumsily trying to play the ball, Gentry flashed around the bases and inside the park home run, right at our feet. We were even on TV later when we got to see it at home on the recording. It was a moment of glory. I told my kids, you won't see that again. A moment of glory, that doesn't happen often. To you, that might not be glory. To me, hearing my child play Pachelbel's Canon on the piano in a piano recital is glory to me. It's, it's remarkable to me that 11-year-old hands can do that. Amazing glory. Or you see it on the internet. I mean, the internet is, is a purveyor of so much good and bad. The internet will show you videos of a military dad returning home early from his assignment, and his wife knows that he's coming early, but his high school football playing son does not. And so the dad arranges ahead of time to dress up in the uniform of the opposing team and to come out at halftime where the captains would meet and take off his helmet and his son begins to weep in joy seeing his dad whom he's not seen in a year. That's glory. 
Or it may be a Down syndrome 20-year-old who has just received a letter saying that he's been accepted to a special program at Clemson University. And his response, this smile breaking out in his face in total disbelief that he has now been given entry into the real world. It's glory. And you recognize it when you see it. For you, you may prefer a striking sunset or a raging storm or justice for the weak or just a fine glass of wine, but you know when you see glory. You know it because you're a human being, and yet they're all just partial, fleeting expressions of true glory because they are all reflections of God alone. Only God is great. Only divine greatness could send such frightful messengers after all. Right? An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The NIV tells us that they were terrified. They were terrified at this vision. How is it that God could send something so terrible? The shepherds were in the field, and they were terrified. They were full of fear. You know, in reading the Bible, it's easy for us to assume things out of, out of our own context. We assume that things like angels were just sort of commonplace in the Bible. I mean, after all, it was Bible times. It was the Middle East, Jerusalem area. That's where Jesus came and God was at work and angels were just sort of there. We just kind of figure these people were used to seeing things like the feeding of the 5,000 or the parting of the Red Sea. These were just normal course for people back in the early days of Bible times, right? No. No, not at all. I mean, angels were as rare in the fields outside of Bethlehem as they are in the streets of Dallas. Because 600 years before this happened, 600 years before, as Israel had declined in unfaithfulness, God, having sent mighty armies to shake them out of their stupor, the prophet Ezekiel recorded an amazing vision himself that he saw at the temple in Jerusalem. He recorded this vision of angels descending on the temple as escorts. These magnificent, fearful angels descending on the temple as escorts and with them the glory of the Lord lifted up out of the temple and departed and it was gone. The glory of the Lord was gone. It departed from among the people and it was gone. And now 600 years later, to shepherds in the field, the glory of the Lord shone around them. They weren't used to this. This was not normal. It was no more normal to them than it would be to you or me if we were to see it out on Skillman Street before the theater. It was not normal to them. They were terrified. But this frightful sight makes total sense because of the fearless message that came with it. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. 600 years after the glory of the Lord had departed, the people of the Lord had forgotten. I mean, can you blame them? I mean, in some sense, we would do the same thing. 600 years it had been since the glory of the Lord had shown itself among the people of God, and they had forgotten. They had forgotten what redemption is. They were, at this point, hoping against hope for a military savior a military savior who would come in in physical strength and political strength to be able to flush out 
the foreigners that had come and, and infiltrated their society so that they could restore things to be the way it was supposed to be, supposedly, in Israel. They had hoped for a military messiah, one who could come and help them to restore their own little glories in their own little lives. That's what they had hoped for because they had forgotten that the narrative of all of history is God reclaiming His people for His name. They had forgotten that what made life count is God restoring His glory to His creation. And so the message is, to you a baby is born in a king's city, and He is the Lord. This baby is the Lord. The one who is glory has come in humility to restore meaning, to restore significance, to restore life, indeed to restore glory to His created ones. This good news is bigger than our little fiefdoms. You know, the little things that we create around our own little lives that give us a sense of meaning. Cookies on the tree is all that they are. It's all that they amount to. Our little fiefdoms have no comparison to the coming glory of this fearless message. God's perspective on narrative, the narrative of history transcends our ability to see it. We can't see with our own eyes from the beginning to the end. And here in a field outside of a tiny town, outside of a forgotten city, glory breaks through. And as Isaiah saw hundreds of years before, the whole earth will be full of His glory. You must worship God alone because He alone is glorious. But while that glory and greatness would be enough to draw us into true worship by itself, it's not by itself. Because there's something else. There's something else that you have to recognize, as did these shepherds, as did Mary and Joseph and Isaiah and Ezekiel, that it's God's grace that makes His glory accessible. God alone is gracious. You know, you can see it in the angels' song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Peace among those to whom His grace is given. Peace among those upon whom His favor rests. Peace. Will you just sit in that for a second? Glory to God in the highest, and peace. Peace. And this from God, from whom, by this point in history, again, context, millions of men and women and children bearing His image from creation had turned away from Him, seeking after their own little fiefdoms, their own little glories, their own little kingdoms, in a sense. Millions had turned away from Him. And God sends fearsome angels... In peace. Go figure. I mean, this only from a gracious God. Only could it be possible from a gracious God. You know, we see hints of grace in people often. But like glory, they're only hints. They're really just only extensions of the one who actually is gracious. So, to figure that out, what is grace after all? You remember, what is grace? Unmerited favor 
You know, I mean, that's, that's our simple two-word answer. This, it's a good answer, but it's not complete. It's, it's not good enough. Unmerited favor, that is what grace is. That's fine, but think of it this way. He didn't deserve it, but I gave him a Christmas bonus anyway. Is that grace? No. It's not grace. It might be politics. It might be generosity on a good day, but it's not grace. Or they never give us a gift, but we persist every year to give these neighbors a gift because we just want to cultivate you know, a giving spirit in the neighborhood and friendships and so on, but they never give us one. We'll keep giving them a gift anyway. Is that grace? No. That's not grace, folks. That's not grace. It's courtesy. It might be kindness. It's not grace. Or my family has no idea how hard I work to provide for them. My kids have no clue how hard I work to keep things straight at home and to take care of them. They have no idea, and yet I continue doing it anyway. Is that grace? No, it's not. It's actually not grace at all. It's not grace. It's responsibility, and it's love. It's not grace. What is grace? What is it? It's the willful doing of good for those who would do you evil. That's what grace is in Scripture. That's the picture of God and His working throughout the narrative of history that we see. Grace is the willful doing of good for those who would do you evil. And i got to tell you, I don't want any part of that. I mean, I want to receive it. I don't want to give it. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of patience individually, just myself, as for people, if they cause me trouble out of their own ignorance or their immaturity or whatever, that's fine. And, and I hope that they'll have patience with me as I cause them trouble or whatever out of my own ignorance or immaturity, and there's plenty of that in me. But if someone were to scheme to do evil against my family, my heart would burn against them like the belly of a dragon in Middle Earth. That's just, I'm just telling you, that's, that's what, I don't want any part of dispensing this sort of grace. I'm a work in progress, but God alone is gracious. God alone is so great that He can bend low to be bound by a context. That's a part of the gospel. God is bound by a context. You know, those who doubt the Christian faith, skeptics, as they think about ways to disprove God or, or different parts of, of Christianity, uh, will ask the question, maybe you've asked this before, can God create a rock so large that He can't lift it? You know, if God is all-powerful, surely He can create anything that He wants to, but can He create one that's so big He can't pick it up? And it, it's kind of a curious question. You know, it's these trivial sorts of speculations are curious and interesting sorts of ideas for us to kind of run down. And there's really no way for us to get to the end of the road on these kinds of questions. God is, after all, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, as the Westminster Confession tells us. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. God is all of these things. And yet, He's bound. Do you know that? Do you know that about your God? He's bound. What's He bound by? He's bound by His own nature. God can't contradict His own righteousness. Or else He would cease to be God. 
he can't contradict his own righteousness, but grace requires actually that he be bound in another way. He came as a baby. Okay, think about this. God chose his own context. From the beginning of creation, God had a plan. As we would look at it and recognize the sovereignty of God in all things, he had to have had a plan. He knew that the fall was going to occur. He allowed sin and he used it sinlessly in order to bring about an expression clearly of his glory in all of creation. And God bound himself into a context. He chose his context. He came as a baby. You know, he might have come as a great warrior, as a powerful king, or, or maybe an elephant or something that could come and, and dominate his context, but he didn't. He came as a baby, a, a newborn child wrapped in swaddling cloth. Luke gives us this interesting little detail. You know, we, we hear this and we think in our warm little by-the-fireplace stockings hung by the chimney with care sort of picture, this baby wrapped in a hospital blanket all cuddly and warm. That's not quite what's going on here. He's wrapped in swaddling cloth. They would take strips of cloth and wrap the limbs of a newborn child tightly and firmly to keep them straight. They, they, medically, they felt that that was an important thing to do. And so you've got this baby who's kind of like this. He's literally bound in a feeding trough. And this is the context that he chose to come into. You don't understand that baby in the manger until you understand that that baby came to be bound by death. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, the Apostle Peter at Pentecost, is preaching to all these people who are listening to him explain why things are happening, why Jesus died and, and rose again and, and proclaiming his resurrection. And Peter is explaining this, and he says to these people at Pentecost something striking, something that when I finally read it when I was in college, I thought, wow, I mean, that, I never understood that. That can't be, but it surely must be. It has, if God is God, this has to be true. This is what Peter said. He said, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Who was in control of that? God. God, by his set purpose and foreknowledge, handed him over to you, bound, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. God chose his context. He was bound by his own grace. Christ was willing to be helpless just to rest in the will of his Father. Now, this church knows a little bit about this sort of thing. And in a season of transition through which this church has just come through, you know, you recognize that, that during that season, there were moments for everybody where you begin to wonder, what is God doing in the midst of this church. Is this God's set purpose and foreknowledge? Surely not. I mean, surely we didn't expect this sort of season 10 years into a, a young church. And yet, it is God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And the Lord calls us by His grace to simply be resigned to rest in the will of the Father who has a set purpose 
and has foreknowledge because he has foreordained all that will come to pass to express his glory. You know, if you're skeptical of Christianity, have you considered this? Have you considered this nature of who God is that in no other religion, and again, everyone has a religion, everyone worships something. A religion is simply that to which you are bound to make your decisions, the platform on which you stand to look at life and determine what is right or wrong or what you're going to do or not do. That's what your religion is. Everyone is religious. Do you recognize, skeptic, skeptical mind, that no other religion shows us a truly great one who is willing to bind himself for your good? That's what this God does. Not even your own little self-designed kingdoms will do that for you. Do you recognize that? Your own little self-designed fiefdoms that you build around you will run away and scatter into chaos unless you keep them all together. They won't bind themselves for your good. Only the true God will do this because only the true God is truly great. His grace then is also expressed by His contentment to be blessed by the poor. It's not just that he's bound by a context in which he's poor, but he's willing, he's content to be blessed by the poor. This legion of angels came to announce a great king. I mean, this was was an entourage of entourages, this legion of angels coming into creation to announce the birth of a great king. And they could have gone to any context they wanted to go to. They could have gone to the halls of power. They could have waited until another era when society was developed a little further and there was technology and powerful people. And they could have gone to those people and expressed this glorious picture of God's coming. And yet, what did they choose to do? They revealed it to shepherds first out in the field the distrusted, disrespected outcasts of poor society, the shepherds out in the field. Why would they do that? Well, of course, there are some strategic reasons. Logistically, it kept things a little bit quiet. The powers didn't know that this king was to be born. And yet persecution came eventually, didn't it? Seeking out to kill any threat to the throne, to the human throne, that is. But why did they come to the shepherds? I think a couple of things we can think about are they came to the shepherds because of what a shepherd has. What does a shepherd have? Nothing. A shepherd ain't got anything. The shepherds are out in the field with the sheep. It's not a job that anybody wanted. It's not something that you trained for in high school. You, know, you weren't growing up saying, hey, I'm going to be a shepherd when I grow up. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. You had to be a shepherd because you had nothing. These people had Nothing. And they came to the shepherd not just because of what a shepherd has, nothing. They came because of what a shepherd does. What does a shepherd do? He gives himself for the good of another, even at great cost, even at throwing his whole life away. A shepherd gives himself for the good of another. You know, as a Christian, you have everything because you have nothing. You have everything because you recognize that all that you do have amounts to nothing. And therefore, you have everything. It doesn't matter in the gospel who you are. It doesn't matter in the gospel who you're not. It doesn't matter in the gospel what you have. 
And it doesn't matter in the gospel what you don't have. It doesn't matter. Because God is willing to be blessed by the poor. Grace doesn't call you to be important. It doesn't call, and that, that's really against the grain of our society, isn't it? It's just against the grain of what we grow up to be, overachievers as we are. We've got to graduate from a great university with honors if we can manage it somehow. We've got to be the high achiever at our class reunion 20 years later, or else we're not going to go. That's just kind of what's ingrained in us. Grace doesn't call you to be important. Grace doesn't call you to be self-sufficient either, American. You know, I'm going to pay my own way. I'm going to to pay my dues and and do my thing, and I'm going to accomplish this and that and the other, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be important and all this. I'm going to do it myself. Grace doesn't call you to be self-sufficient. Grace doesn't call you to have a voice either, which is so hard for us now in the media-saturated world in which we live. We all have a voice if we choose to claim it. You know, we all could aspire to have a thousand Twitter followers or a million friends on Facebook or have everybody read my blog because I've got something to say. You don't have to have a voice. Grace doesn't call you to. But grace does call you to do one thing. It calls you to respond. Grace calls you to respond. Upon seeing the glory of God around them, what did the shepherds do? They got up. They said, let's go. Let's go to this place and see this thing that this glory is pointing us to. Let's go. And they worshiped. And the shepherds returned, Luke tells us, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called the Lord saves. The Lord saves because he does. Christmas is busy. You know, you've got places to go. You've got people to see. You've got things to do. There are just two more days for you to finish all of it. But don't forget. Don't forget, apart from God's glory and grace, you have nothing. But in the incarnate Christ, you have everything. Everything. Enjoy your gifts, but worship your God. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant that we might see your glory and recognize your grace at work all around us and in us and even through us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to glorify your name in all that we do and all that we say because you alone are glorious and you alone are gracious, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.